welcome everyone to our final week looking at Jesus through Matthew's eyes. Last week, we looked at the topic of Moses um, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus as the new Moses. And one of the key moments in Moses' life is when he encounters God himself in the burning bush. Uh, and God reveals who he is, reveals what he would like Moses to do. Um, and this week somehow feels like the, the other side of that story. Because this week we're looking at the topic of Emmanuel, God with us. We're looking at Jesus as God himself. And so in a sense, last week we were looking at Jesus as a representative of Moses. This week we're looking at the other side, the burning bush, Jesus as actually identified as God himself. And so one of the most distinctive characteristics of Christianity, one of the most distinctive beliefs of Christianity is that Jesus is God himself. Jesus is both human and God, truly man, truly God. He's not just a great teacher. He's not even just a, a supernatural being, an, an angel, something like that. He, he's not even a God among many gods. He is the true singular God revealed as a trinity. He is the one true God incarnated, fully man, fully God. Jesus is God with us. This has been one of the most important doctrines of the church since the very beginning. And so uh, when the church first made a creed, which is kind of a statement of belief summarizing scripture, then the focus for the first creed, the Nicene Creed, was the, um, the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And so this it can't be more important. Matthew 1, 22 to 23 kind of begins uh, our passage this week, our theme this week, where it says, all this, which was the birth of Jesus, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a quote from Isaiah 7:14. Matthew is quoting Isaiah saying, this is how this prophecy has been fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And when it says that his name is Emmanuel, it doesn't mean a personal name. Personal name is Jesus. It means a description of him. You can have personal names and then descriptive names. So the name Emmanuel would be a description of who Jesus is, of his activity, of his identity, of his life on earth. This is what would characterize him. God with us. When we summarize the life of Jesus, we can use that as a descriptive name for him. So what we're looking at tonight is essentially, what does it mean that Jesus is Emmanuel? What does it mean that Jesus is God with us? And how did he demonstrate that? When we look at Matthew's gospel, how do we see that Jesus is God himself and God with us? And what does that mean? Why should we even care about the fact that Jesus is God with us? So we're going to look at three different things tonight that I think demonstrate the deity of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. And the first is the activities of God. 
when we look at Jesus' work, the things that he did, we see that these are the activities of God as described in the Old Testament. So just to quickly point out a number of them, we have miracles. And particularly, we can think of calming the storm, healing. Uh, let's think of healing the lame, healing the blind, healing the deaf. Think of multiplying food, feeding the 5,000, and then on another occasion, feeding the, the 4,000 with bread and loaves. And then we can have, think of a another category, which is authority. In his speaking, he is authoritative. As he forgives sins, he is authoritative. And as he demonstrates and tells that at the final, uh, the end times, he will be the final judge, then he demonstrates authority there. Um, so as we go through each of these, uh, we'll go through them fairly quickly just because of our, our time. But when we think of calming the storm, we think of a parallel uh, with that. Well, then naturally what comes to mind is the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. There's something being done to a great body of water. And those occasions happen few and far between throughout the Old Testament. And the Red Sea is the greatest of all of them. So we think, well, maybe Jesus is just demonstrating he is new, a new Moses again. That's the parallel that we see there. Uh, but actually, in Exodus chapter 14, which recounts the story of the Red Sea being parted, the emphasis is somewhat taken away from Moses. It says that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. So we think, yes, Moses is the one doing this. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. So we are in no doubt whatsoever that it wasn't the fact that Moses was stretching out his hand. That wasn't the thing that drove back the sea. It was the Lord, the one behind Moses, who separated the waters. The difference with the coming of the storm is Jesus speaks. He rebukes. And it's, it stills. He doesn't um, rebuke. And then Matthew comments saying, oh, and the Lord stilled the sea. No, it was Jesus who st stilled the sea. There is no intermediary. Like Jesus is not an intermediary. He is the source of authority. He speaks and it happens. Think of healing as well. And... Throughout the Old Testament, there were prophets who did miracles. And there were prophets who healed in various situations. Even prophets who brought back from the dead um, through the Lord's power. However, the particular type of healings that Jesus did, restoring the sight of the blind, healing the lame, um, healing the deaf, those actually don't happen in the Old Testament, but they're described in the Old Testament. So in Isaiah 35, uh, it says, when it talks about when the Lord comes, when God himself comes, this is what will happen. This is what will be characteristic of those times. Then the eyes of the blind shall be stopped. So, sorry. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the eye in the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. These are the types of miracles that Jesus did. 
the types of miracles that he did are the same miracles which are said in Isaiah 35 would be associated with God's coming to humanity. That's what sets Jesus's miracles aside from the miracles of the prophets of the Old Testament, or even with the multiplying of the food and the manner in the wilderness. Then you see a parallel between Jesus feeding the 5,000 and dividing up and multiplying the bread and the loaves and God himself providing manna for the Israelites in the wilderness. If we move on to the second kind of larger uh, category of activities, not just miracles, but of authority, we can see that Jesus speaks authoritatively. Made a comment last week about when Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount and the difference between Jesus and the prophets was in how they spoke. What Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount isn't, thus says the Lord. Uh, I'm a prophet and I will tell you what the Lord has said to me. Instead, he says, I, I say to you. The authority that is behind those statements saying, I say to you, I bear authority in and of myself, demonstrates his his deity is putting himself on the same level with the Lord himself. We could think of um, the great commission as well, Matthew 28, where Jesus declares all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who is the one who is authoritative over heaven and earth? It's the one who created them. Jesus is saying there that he was the one who created heaven and earth. That's why he has authority over them. Another uh, two passages or, or themes that display Jesus' deity through authority is as he forgives sins and as he says that he will uh, judge all people in the final times, the end times. There's a couple of passages which I will just draw attention to, to demonstrate this the first is how it was taken by others when he declared that he forgave matthew 9 and behold some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed and when jesus saw their faith he said to the paralytic take heart my son your sins are forgiven and behold some of the scribes said to themselves this man is blaspheming because how can someone forgive except God? How can someone say that your sins are forgiven unless they are the one who was ultimately wronged? The one who is the standard for righteousness and justice. That's why when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, it's not just a, it's not just a nice thing that he's saying, you know, don't worry. Like you, we all have regrets. You're forgiven. He's actually taken on the authority of God himself to say, I declare that your sins are forgiven. You're righteous. You are pure. You are washed new. The second passage I'll look at is uh, Matthew seven, where Jesus says on that day, meaning the very last day, when the world comes to an end, when this world passes away, 
and we will all come before the judgment seat of God. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Didn't we do all of these things? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What Jesus says that is at the very end of the age, he is the one who has authority to say, depart from me. You will spend eternity elsewhere. And it's not depart from God, depart from the Lord. It's depart from me. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In some sense, Jesus is saying that he is the presence of God. He is, is God with us. Depart from the presence of the Lord, which I am in and of itself. One final thing that I believe helps demonstrate Jesus' deity in his activities is the kind of passages that are spoken of as being fulfilled in him, just like uh, Kevin had mentioned, saying that there were certain prophecies that were fulfilled in, uh, in Jesus' life that Matthew draws our attention to. One of the things that's really interesting, and this is one of the things that we miss out on, particularly not knowing the Old Testament as well as um, Matthew's original readers would have, is that many of these passages originally in the Old Testament specifically apply to God himself. So in Matthew 3, 3, it talks about John the Baptist and who John the Baptist was. And it says that John the Baptist was the one who fulfills the prophecy of one crying in the wilderness, uh, making way for the Lord, making straight the paths of the Lord. And then the same chapter comes clear that the one who he's making the um the one who he is making the path straight for is Jesus. But the prophecy in Isaiah is uh, related to God himself. So what Matthew is saying kind of subtly, um, something that doesn't stick out to us immediately, is when John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus, and he says, and he fulfilled this prophecy. He's saying he fulfilled this prophecy, which was about God himself. Jesus is God himself. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on Matthew, says, Matthew does not hesitate to apply Old Testament passages descriptive of Yahweh, that's the name of God, descriptive of Yahweh, directly to Jesus. He does this a number of times. If you end up having time to uh, be able to read through Charles Quile's book on the theology of Matthew, he has a, a section on this that looks at different passages of Matthew where Matthew looks at the Old Testament passages that are about God himself and applies them to Jesus' own life. So that's the activities of God. Jesus demonstrates through his activities that he is God. I believe we might have... Oh, we've got someone else able to join us. The second major category that we're going to look at is the names of God. We're going to look at some of the titles of Jesus and how these point to his divinity. First of all, the very name Jesus. I believe I mentioned this last week, but what it means is Yahweh 
saves. Um, if you weren't aware, the name Yahweh is the, when you look at the Old Testament and you see the name Lord in all capital letters, that's the Hebrew word behind that word. That's the name that God reveals as being his own to Moses in the burning bush. So Jesus means Yahweh saves. But then in Matthew chapter 1, uh, once it talks about Jesus being named Jesus, it says the reason being so is because he, Jesus, will save his, Jesus' people from their sins. So his name means Yahweh saves. But then it says that Jesus will save his people from his sins. Yahweh saves. Jesus saves. That's the kind of correlation that Matthew is making. Even in his name, from the very moment he was born. Actually, I believe this is in the, uh, the dream that Joseph has, where the angel telling him what, he, what Jesus shall be named. Even before he was born, it was demonstrated, this child is no normal child. This child is God with us. This is God come to save us. The second name or title that we can look at is the Son of God. Interesting thing about the genealogy, which I feel like we've spent a decent amount of time on over the past few weeks, is that you go through this pattern all throughout the genealogy, which is so-and-so fathered so-and-so. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, and so on. And until finally you get to Joseph. And then it changes once it gets to Jesus. Instead of saying what you would expect it to say is Joseph fathered Jesus. It doesn't say that. It says Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. So you get this, this passive and the implication is that jesus father is not joseph jesus father is god himself that the passive is saying he has no human father the implication is by not mentioning his father's name matthew is reminding us that's because his father is god himself there are several times where God himself declares Jesus to be his son in um, Matthew's gospel to make it clear in no uncertain terms. There's two situations in particular. There's the baptism. When Jesus rises up out of the water after being baptized, then a voice declares from heaven saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then at the transfiguration, we see a voice from a cloud again says the same. This is my son. Listen to him. So there are moments where Jesus is supernaturally, miraculously declared to be the son of God through a divine voice. Um, one of the most important um, passages for our understanding of what it means that Jesus is the son of God is Matthew 26. There may be some uh, cults or um, various, uh, yeah, cults or other religions 
who may say, Jesus is the son of God. I have no problem with that, but that doesn't mean he's God himself. But actually, is, is that fair? Is that what Jesus understood his own, um, his own identity as the son of God is being? Matthew 26, Jesus is being arrested and he is being tried by the high priest and the leaders of the Jewish people. And it says that the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, didn't say anything in response to their accusations. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, this is the, the point at which he decides to speak. Up until that point, he has not spoken a word. But now he says, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Jesus says, um, you have said so. That's a way of saying, yes, you are correct. I agree with you. I'm not denying that. And I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated on the right hand of the power coming on the clouds of heaven. How Jesus understands his role as the son of God is actually that he partakes of God's nature. That's why the high priest tears his robes and he says, he's uttered blasphemy. This is the same uh, reaction that those had when Jesus said that he forgave sins. He's uttered blasphemy. He is taking on a role which is only God's. Matthew chapter 28 reveals a, a bit more of this um, relationship that Jesus has. This is the second to last verse in Matthew's gospel. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's about, or he's telling them to go into all the nations, spread the gospel. And he says, baptize the disciples that you make in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. So you get one of the clearest depictions of the Trinity in all of scripture. One of the most interesting things about this passage is that the name um, of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, it's not plural. It's not the names, plural, of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three separate names. There is a threeness, since they are three um, different persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there is also a oneness as well, in that they partake, they share of the same name. The Son, Jesus Christ, shares the same name as the Father and of the Spirit. Even Matthew chapter 11 speaks about the Father and the Son knowing one another. Jesus says that he knows the Father and the Father knows him. What he's saying is that they know each other in the same way as one another. As the Father knows Jesus, Jesus knows the Father. What human could say that? What human could say, I know the Father 
in the same way that he knows me. We are finite. He is infinite. We have limited knowledge. He is completely um, omniscient and present. He knows all things. A third title that Jesus uses and that Matthew uses throughout the gospel is actually Jesus' favorite term for himself. And um, we see it actually in the passage that we looked at a moment ago in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus says to the priest, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man, the son of man. It's an interesting title that Jesus uses for himself because it could mean a few different things. It could just mean that he is a, uh, He's a person. Son of man means a son of humankind. I'm, I'm a person. But that doesn't seem to make sense of a, a number of the ways that Jesus uses it. And particularly in that passage in Matthew 26, it talks about the son of man coming on the clouds, seated at the right hand of the father. This is a, a powerful image that Jesus is giving. So where exactly is he drawing from? And when we look back at the Old Testament, we see that Jesus is drawing from Daniel chapter 7. If you ever read through the book of Daniel, you may know that the first six chapters are fantastic. The first six chapters are all of these narratives, all of these stories about Daniel and his friends. And you get the story of the fiery furnace. You get the story of the lion's den. And then the last six chapters of Daniel can be a little bit confusing. <laughs> They're filled with prophecies and dreams and visions, some of which are very confusing. And one of these dreams, visions that Daniel has is in chapter seven, where he says that he saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like one one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And so when we read this passage, we say, may say, well, that's interesting, but actually there's a distinction there. There's, there's one like a son of man. So yeah, maybe Jesus is uh, identifying himself with that son of man, but then he comes to the ancient of days. So that means Jesus isn't the ancient of days, right? The ancient of days is God himself. The thing that's so remarkable about this passage is that it says the one like a son of man comes with the clouds of heaven to come before the ancient of days. Throughout the Old Testament, there are a number of times where it talks about coming with the clouds of heaven. You have um, Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1. It says, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. The Lord is riding on a swift cloud. Read in Psalm 104, chapter or verse 3. It says, The Lord makes the clouds his chariot. He, he rides on the wings of the wind. Throughout all the scripture, there is no one else that travels on the clouds of heaven. It's always God himself. When you read Daniel, um, it seems to 
be saying that the one like a son of man, the glory that is attributed to him, he shares and participates in the glory of the Ancient of Days. There is a sense in which the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days are distinct, but also the same. Seems very confusing. Certainly, if we didn't have the New Testament, it would be even more confusing, and we wouldn't quite know how to make sense of it. But with the New Testament and the understanding that God himself is three persons, three in one, then we can see how this is actually remarkably um, a remarkable parallel of that. We have one like a son of man who is not fully identified with the ancient of days, but also participates, is, shares his glory. And so we see that the, um, the clouds in particular, as Jesus speaks to the high priest, during his trial. And he says that he, the son of man will be coming on the clouds and will, will reign on the throne on the right hand of the, the throne of God. There's nothing blasphemous about calling oneself the Messiah. There's nothing blasphemous about saying that, um, Jesus would, um, be a servant of God, would be anointed by God. There's nothing blasphemous about that. The, the reason that the high priest is saying that Jesus is speaking blasphemy is because he knows that by saying that he is coming on the clouds, that, that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, he is identifying himself with God himself. The Son of God is God himself. He is God, the Son. The Son of Man is the son of man from Daniel. The last name we're going to look at of Jesus is Lord. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, as we read, we'll see certain encounters that Jesus has, and people call him Lord in a number of different settings. And this term can just mean sir or master. It's more of a, a formal term of um, of politeness of referring to someone um you get a uh, a reference in ephesians i think ephesians 6 with it referring to a slave master you know you have a, a master so it, it does it can just have those connotations however the other connotation it can have is that it's actually a translation of yahweh the name of god so when we look at the old testament and we see the the Lord is written all in capital letters, and that's the translation of Yahweh in Hebrew. The reason why in English most translations will say Lord is because of an early translation of the Hebrew into Greek. So Greek was the language of the New Testament. Hebrew was the language of the Old Testament. And in a translation into Greek of the Old Testament, then the translators chose to translate Yahweh as Lord. Um, and so that's the same word that we get all throughout the New Testament. So it doesn't necessarily mean God. It can mean sir or master. But I think some of the ways that it's used uh, demonstrate a couple of things. Firstly, in Matthew chapter 7, we read that passage earlier. It's at the end of time when 
those come before Jesus and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do um, great works in your name? They say, Lord, Lord, a, a double repetition. And in the Greek Old Testament, the only occasions where you get a double repetition of this word is specifically in reference to God himself, Lord, Lord. And so um, I wonder if what Jesus is saying is the people who do great works in my name and not even great works in my name, but actually have a very high, um, have a very high belief in who I am. Uh, that they declare that I am God himself. That's not what it's just about. It's actually about where is your heart at? Do you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior? Not just consciously with your head recognize that he is God. The demons recognize that Jesus is God himself. So I think that's one way that it comes through is that we see that this particular double repetition only occurs in the Old Testament with God. The second is we have the phrase a number of times where Jesus is just about to heal someone, they'll come to him, they'll say, Lord, have mercy. And again, that particular phrasing is only found in the Old Testament with reference to God himself. Lord, have mercy. And so there are these ways that um, I think at the time, the person who was coming to Jesus um, and saying, Lord, have mercy. I don't think that they're fully understanding that he is God himself. And they're saying, God, have mercy on me. Um, but Matthew is having the flexibility of the language, that there's a nuance here, that at the time it could be seen as respectful. Later on, Matthew can say, looking back now, can't we see how this weaved all throughout Jesus' life? Uh, you can actually, it's a play on words, really. And so, even in the title, the designation Lord, then we can see that Jesus is named uh, or given the name that God himself is given. The third uh, major category I wanted to look at, we looked at the activities of Jesus and the names of Jesus or the activities of God and the names of God. Now I want to look at the response to God. How did people respond to Jesus? I want to pick up on one thing in particular. We could say that they called him Lord. They called him various different things. We want to pick up on one particular action, which is worship. There's a Greek word, which is pros proskuneo. And as with any kind of language, when you translate a language into another language, it has this range of meaning. You don't get um, one word meaning exactly the same word in a different language. There are, depending on the context, different ways to be able to translate a word, which is why you get, um, when we were just talking about the term, the Lord, that you can translate that in a couple of different ways. You need to pay attention to how it's being used in the particular passage that it's mentioned in. So this term proskuneo can mean to fall down maybe as an act of reverence, or it can mean to worship. And so we get occasions throughout Matthew's gospel where it seems to mean to fall down. Oh, Matthew may be kind of 
playing on words a little bit here. So you have people who um, are in distress and suffering. They come to Jesus to be healed and they fall down before him. And maybe they say, Lord, have mercy as well. There are other occasions where it, it can't mean that. Matthew chapter 2, the visit of the Magi to Jesus, the wise men. When they come to Jesus, Matthew says, they fell down and proskuneo Jesus. They fell down and worshipped. So Matthew is going out of his way to say they already had fallen down. So it wouldn't make much sense to say they fell down and they fell down. <laughs> they fell down and they worshipped Jesus. Even at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, he shows that Jesus is being worshipped. It's something that is only um, done to God himself. Matthew chapter 4, we see the same term used. And this is when Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. And he says, in his temptation, um, being, temptate, uh, being tempted by Satan, he says, doesn't it say, you shall worship the Lord your God alone? This is the same word that's used. Clearly, it doesn't mean to just be reverent towards. It's okay to be respectful towards other people. But God himself, he is the only one to whom we may worship. We see a couple of other situations later on, but one very important occurrence right at the end of Matthew's gospel is in chapter 28, verse 17. It's when his disciples see him, when he has risen from the dead, and they worship him. And they recognize that this is God himself in flesh. They've seen him rise from the dead. Now all of the miracles that he's done make sense. They thought everything had fallen apart, that they had trusted in Jesus, that he would be the coming king, the Messiah, and suddenly he dies and they don't know how to make sense of it anymore. But then he rises from the dead and everything, all the pieces fall into place and they worship him on the mountain. Worship of anything but God in scripture is called idolatry. Been reading through Isaiah recently and Isaiah picks up on this a lot. He's talking about the sin of Judah, Jerusalem, during the time that he's alive and prophesying. And, and he says, you guys don't realize how badly you've messed up. That you are meant to be living for God. You are meant to be worshiping him, but instead you are worshiping other things. And that's not something that is acceptable. That's not something that it's okay because you're still worshiping God. You know, we've just added a few extra things in there. But that's okay. We're still worshiping God. No, if you add anything into the mix, it takes away from what is rightfully God. It's idolatry. It's giving something to God that is rightfully his and his alone. And so when we see um, Jewish men and women bowing down, worshiping Jesus after he's risen from the dead, that is a profound statement of the position that jesus holds in their minds that he isn't just a good man he isn't just a great teacher 
He's not just a supernatural being. He is God himself. He is one who rightfully accepts worship. I want to finish tonight by looking at the passage that I just mentioned at the end there, Matthew chapter 28. This is the, the great commission. It's where Jesus sees his disciples after he's risen from the dead. And Matthew says that the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What we see at the beginning and the end of Matthew is what's called an inclusio. Essentially, it's a bracketing. You have at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, verse 23 of chapter 1, um, that Jesus will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then at the very end, the very last words of Matthew's gospel, Matthew brings it back around again to, to show the framing of his entire gospel. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, God with us, is with us always to the end of the age. Notice that it isn't a, a future tense. Jesus isn't saying, don't worry, I'm going away now, but I will be with you in the future. It's I am with you always. Jesus is with us now. He's not left us. He's not forsaken us. He is with us, eternally present. There are a few things that, as I was reading this passage and, and wondering, what does it mean that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us? I think he gives us some indications in this final passage in Matthew. The first is that we should trust him. It says uh, in verse 17 that some doubted when they first saw Jesus. Some of them still doubted. I think there might be a microphone on. If someone's able to mute that. Um, it says in verse 17 that some doubted. It, despite when they first see him, they still doubt. There's a doubt in their heart. Um, and Jesus has to, has to speak. So the first thing is, let us not doubt let us be those who trust, trust immediately. The next response, I think, for us is to worship. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Jesus is the one who rightfully deserves our worship in everything that we do, every day of our life. The next response is obey. He tells his disciples to go into the world and teach their disciples to observe all that I have commanded you. So we're to be obedient to his teaching. Doesn't mean we're just, you know, friends with Jesus and we hang out with him and 
we enjoy kind of all the comforting words that he says. Actually, there's a, he is Lord of creation. And so when he commands us to do something, our only right response is to obey. The next response is to be baptized. I don't know if, if all of you are, are baptized. I don't know if any of you haven't been baptized yet. But this is one of the ways that we can observe what Jesus has commanded us to do. To be baptized in his name. And then finally, to join his mission. There's a, a few of these highlighted uh, words here. Other response to um, the disciples of the disciples. Jesus says to his disciples, go into world, go into the world, make disciples, uh, baptize them and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So there's the, uh, the response that we should have of as disciples of disciples. And then the response we should have as disciples, Jesus, his disciples, they worship him, they trust and they make disciples. So when we think about our life, when we think about our words and our actions and our thoughts of each moment, each day, someone could look into our mind. As we look into our mind, as we know the things that we think and say and do, does it reflect the fact that we are living in light of Jesus as God with us? When we speak, do we remember that Jesus is present with us, that he is Lord of all creation? When we act, when we encounter others and we treat them a certain way, do we remember that Jesus is present with us? that he is where our true allegiance lies, that he is Lord of all creation. He is Lord of all. He, he is God of the universe. But have we applied that to our own life? Are, are there certain ways that we can apply it better to our own life? Are there ways that we can increasingly make Jesus God of our lives? Let me pray to them finish us lord jesus how amazing is it that you are god with us not god will be with us not god was with us god with us right now you are present with us you are present with your people help us to be comforted lord in the trials that we encounter as we face uncertainty, whether it's because of job loss, um, family, fa friend, relationships breaking down, whether it's personal anxiety and fear, help us to be comforted by the fact that you are with us and you've promised not to leave us or forsake us. We pray that we would trust in you, that we, should that we will worship you every day of our lives, that we will obey you and obey you alone.
We pray that you would help us to join your mission in declaring to the world that you are Lord, you are God. Lord, we pray that this knowledge, not just intellectual knowledge, but knowledge of the heart would be spread throughout the the whole world, through all lands and nations, through all people groups, through every age, through all types of people, Lord. May knowledge of you spread. May people realize that you are savior and redeemer, that you share our humanity, but you are God himself. We praise you. We thank you for everything you've done. And Lord Jesus, we worship you. Amen.